0: Yes, folks, Left Reckoning back again. Hello, David, how are you doing?
1: Hey, man, I'm really looking forward to sharing this with everybody.
0: Yeah, we have a a great discussion with Matt Huber, author of the book, Climate Change as Class War. Uh, There we go. And uh, yeah, a really good uh, sort of, uh, how would you call it, like our not a reframing, but like a sort of, uh, well, a framing of climate issues in a way that the left needs to get a little bit more serious about, I think is the way to
1: put yeah, it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's doing a lot. I mean, this book, again, uh, we'll, we'll suggest that people in the uh, interview, but um, you know, it really breaks down one, some of the historical problems of both the climate left and also the neoliberal kind of Obama style perspective on fixing the market, uh, to deal with climate change. I think those critiques, um, are very powerful along with the critiques of, of degrowth, but it doesn't just stop there. What, uh, Matt Huber really lays out is an argument for how not only we can decarbonize uh, the economy, but also find a way to build this kind of just social future that we've all been fighting for. It's a really insightful and, and wonderful interview. And, uh, I mean, hell, I just, uh, Matt Huber is somebody who I respect greatly. So it's always great to be able to share his work. And it's really wonderful when you have like a 300 page book for people to to pick up afterwards and, and comb through because it is well worth your time. I can't say that enough.
0: Yeah, it's a really good book. And I think helping to talk to non Marxists or non environmentalists about these sorts of issues, particularly the way Huber outlines uh, ecology and the mm-hmm. way the left needs to think about that as a place where we, Depend on the market. I know people in North Dakota who, you know, hunt off the land, do a lot of fishing. None, I, I know one guy who refills his own bullet cartridges. But you're still reliant on landowners and all sorts mm-hmm. of stuff. No, we do not have our our subsistence is through the market, and that is a, a very important thing to realize as we as climate change uh, is uh, affecting the entire world. Um, that you know we should have access to, but now only capitalists do.
1: Absolutely. And um, so we're, the, um, I'm going to be gone. I'm gone this week, I guess, when this will be uh, Aaron. Um, so I'm sorry for our patrons. Uh, we won't have a, uh, a live Q&A like we typically do. Uh, but we also have a really fun uh, Patreon bonus episode on the, the Musk meltdown, uh, which has been a pretty wild story to be following through uh, the past few days.
0: Yeah, it is uh it's galloping at full speed, so we're gonna do a little uh, a little snapshot of it now with I mean, there's so many different things that Elon Elon seems like a bit he seems like he's in a bit of a pickle. It, sounds <laughs> like
1: it. it certainly sounds uh, so, yeah. like it. Um but you can get access to that at patreon.com slash left reckoning. And if you missed it last week, um our conversation uh with Vina Dubal was really, really fascinating, breaking down you know the ways that big corporations like Uber and Lyft are sort of trying to get around existing labor law and how they're very cynically uh, using the framing and terminology of racial justice um, to do that. So if you missed that, uh, you can get access to that too at patreon.com slash left reckoning. Um, and we've got a hell of a lot more uh, coming for y'all in the uh, next couple weeks.
0: Yeah, including uh, this weekend for patrons, uh, I'll be talking with Chip Gibbons, about this uh, domestic terror uh legislation that uh, a lot of Democrats, all the Democrats signed. Um and the disinfo board and uh some of Biden uh, other Biden um sort of uh civil liberties threatening actions. So uh patreon dot com slash well I guess yeah you if you aren't a patron, Patreon dot com slash left reckoning to get access to that.
1: Yeah. Well, without further ado, uh, here's our conversation with Matt Huber, author of Climate Change as Class War. And uh, we'll see uh, patrons uh, in the post game. Welcome back, everybody. Left Reckoning. We're really excited and honored to be joined today uh, by Matt T. Huber, who's a professor of geography in the uh, Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University, um, who just uh, came out with this really wonderful book. <laughs> climate change is class war spiffy uh, spiffy uh, cover as well Um, thank you so much Matt starkly
0: (laughs) graphic design I like it
1: (laughs) thank you so much Matt for uh, hanging out with us uh, this uh, evening thanks for having me well um, I think we can just jump right into it I mean rightfully so like we talk about climate change a lot It's, it's a damn pressing problem but I get worried because sometimes I think, you know, especially the left gets so caught up in like, okay, well, we need to believe the science and we just need to do something that oftentimes right. I think we forget, one, how can we build movements? And right. two, what exactly are we going to do? And I really find your book um, to be an antidote to that in, in many ways. But maybe to start us off, um, I really like how you reinsert production into the climate question. <laughs> yeah. Um, and could you maybe like juxtapose you know what you can roughly call like a consumption-based approach to climate politics versus a class one?
2: Well, interestingly, there's there's a class analysis that that focuses on consumption that in a really uh I think impoverished and narrow way. So if you look around in, in academia and in much of the um you know like mainstream press, you'll hear constant talk about climate change as a problem of inequality, like in the Thomas Piketty sort of sense that there's a lot of rich people and there's a lot of poor people and the the gap is widening and that all that analysis kind of does this sort of carbon footprint um, analysis of people's, what are called lifestyle consumption based footprints. So -hmm. what you do in your everyday life, you you eat some steak, you drive a car, you, you, um, you sort of add up all that, uh, all that consumption and you get a sort of, footprint of however many pounds of carbon and uh um this has just become the way everyone thinks about climate impacts they think the worst thing that rich people do is they um you know is in their consumption world um you know with like yachts and private jets um but As we know, as as socialists, like that's not that vision of class is very superficial. It's about people's income and their consumer practices. And socialists like to focus on the relationship to production, to the means of production. And it really struck me that this is a really useful, just like just like the most basic old school socialist way of thinking about class is a really useful way of, of looking at the climate crisis, because Really, like in a lot of ways, this movement or struggle is really over how we produce um, mm-hmm. everything, you know, at the core of it is energy. But if you start looking at energy, energy is an input to everything else. And and so in and it's, you know, uh, it's a system of industrial production that we're going to have to fundamentally transform. And, you know, like that's what socialist and working class movements were always about to sort of struggle over um, seizing, if you will, the, the means of production, seizing industrial production for the working class. And and so this kind of old socialist uh, sort of class analysis focused on production is really useful way to think about the climate crisis. And then moreover, if you start thinking about class in this way, focused on production, but also like ownership, like who mm-hmm. who owns production, who's profiting from production, then you you really are gonna look at it way differently than this, God bless them, Thomas Piketty like inequality carbon footprint way, because you're not gonna look at people's consumptive activities. You're gonna look at, well, how did they get all the money that allowed for that consumption in the first place? You know, maybe they're a CEO of a, a fossil fuel company and and you know, they spend their days like organizing this big productive system to churn out fossil fuels for profit and that's how they make all their money. And then maybe they drive a Hummer on the, on the side, but that's like a drop in the bucket compared to their, you know, like what they're doing to make the money. Um, And then also when you start to think about like, wait a minute, like when we consume uh, gasoline or when we consume natural gas to heat our homes, like we're not the only ones involved in that transaction. There's other owners, there's other producers who provision that consumption and are profiting off of it. And somehow the whole carbon footprint, uh, a methodology like erases <laughs> those owners and makes it you the consumer 100% responsible for for these uh emissions and it just sort of and and it just sort of erases capitalist uh ownership uh who's profiting from this and 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 that's those people are the real ones who are responsible and then finally If you just look at a very basic sort of understanding of where emissions are coming from and who and and what are the most sort of emission intensive parts of the economy, it's also industrial production. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's something crazy, like just steel and cement. The production of steel and cement is something like 15 to 20 percent of global carbon emissions right there. Uh, In the book, I do a case study of the nitrogen fertilizer industry, which is a massive carbon intensive production system. Uh, and then, if you look at a sort of uh, global level, industrial production is responsible for about 34% of emissions, which is higher than um, all the other categories uh, that you would look at, like transportation or um, residential um, heating and, and um, agricultural land use. These these other categories. So, so from all these different angles, like it's it's clear the real issue here is industrial production, and we need to build a movement that can kind of take control over that system to, to rapidly transition away from a fossil fuel based mode of production. Yeah.
0: Yeah, You have a really good section on the uh, airline, uh, air travel in general with this line, carbon guilt confuses material privilege, a level of comfort and security with the power to control the material organization of energy production. You might feel privileged to fly on a plane, but the airline industry gains the profit from your privilege exactly
2: and that that passage comes from me being in this um somewhat hellscape of academia where man all these academics are they think that their their flights and their flying they think they think higher education is like this really carbon intensive
0: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> sector it's really not but they're really they're they're just so torn up about the flying that they have to do for conferences and research and whatever. And it's all, they'd set up websites and petitions and there's this hashtag fly less campaign about, and it's all about, you know, um, changing academics, um, behavior at, at the consumption level. And no one ever brings up aviation capital, <laughs> like like the people actually profiting from the system. It's just erased from this whole discourse. So.
1: Well, I mean, like <laughs> a lot of like the modern climate movement is all about decisions, um, but they're sort of leaving out one of the biggest decision makers, which is, you know, the capitalist class and, and the people yeah. who um are, are profiting off of this system. You know, before we get to to that class of folks, I mean, um, let's talk about the the climate movement just a bit. Um, yeah. because you make the argument that so much particularly of like the American climate movement comes out of, you know, this kind of PMC or professional managerial class politics yeah. of, you know, guilt. Um, You know, could you talk a little bit about that, that development, what its effects are, and, and most importantly, how their relationship to production affects mm-hmm. their politics in general, and more specifically, their climate politics?
2: Yeah, so the first thing is like the whole class project of the PMC or the professional class is to try to, you know, in the context of, again, Thomas Piketty, like a widening inequality in this sort of barbaric. Um, capitalist system Uh, the class project is to try to marshal credentials of some kind like degrees and licenses to carve out an advantage in the labor market and um, to attain some level of uh, middle class security Um, and that class project then create like runs into a contradiction when you become more aware and invested in climate politics because that very middle-class security, which is at the heart of your class project, becomes embedded in these practices like um, owning a car, um, uh, maybe a single-family home in the suburbs, or um, uh, flying for your professional um, academic (laughs) conferences or whatever. Um, And and so those so-called high-carbon lifestyle practices become a source of guilt and anxiety for uh, the professional class. Um, And so therefore, their politics kind of does channel that guilt towards like an inward looking moralistic politics over lifestyle changes and the need to um, lower your carbon footprint and stuff like that. But the other way of looking at the professional class and the rise of the professional class is it's, it's happening and actually Barbara and John Ehrenreich are, are really mapping how this dynamic is sort of affecting like the new left and, and political movements in the '60s and '70s, as you get this skyrocketing of higher education and people, more and more people going into higher education and, again, using that to try to carve out advantages in the labor market but you also alongside that um have obviously the assault on the industrial working class you have widespread deindustrialization mm-hmm. and um you have a real um uh you know class war against kind of that blue collar industrial working class that had built up so much power from the 1930s onward and so you sort of have the decline of the industrial working class with the rise of this kind of professional class that's sort of working in what we call the knowledge economy, which is very, by its very definition, separate, separated from this core issue of climate, which is industrial production. And so for the professional class, there's um, this kind of distance from the industrial system. And, and um, it's a very different type of class position than, that good old industrial proletariat that's like doing the work in the factories that's organizing in the factories to try to, again, wrestle control over these productive systems. And so for the professional class, I think they really kind of see industrial production as purely this kind of thing out there. That's bad mm. and harmful and doing bad things to, um, communities, <laughs> the environment and, and, and sort of their analysis is always just sort of pointing out the the harms and the but it's a very different approach uh to socialism traditionally which is really not necessarily saying that industrial production's um bad that it that it's bad when it's controlled by capitalists but it actually if we could harness it for our own class <laughs> we could actually um you know use the the gains of industrial production to kind of create the conditions for human liberation and automation and all this kind of stuff so, um you just get a very different relationship to production when you 're coming from that knowledge economy and the professional class
1: and, and you note in, in the book, which I think was just an astute point, that like when you get a lot of these at least in like American left circles, like criticisms of like consumerism right a lampooning of American consumerism is happening in the '70s and what 's happening for the working class at this period of time is just like an all out class war against them they 're actually starting to see their standards of living declining. Um, when it is this kind of class that's sort of outside of that world that is then starting to get very holy and worried spiritually about, you know, how many cheeseburgers people are eating and things like that as
2: people are getting fired and their unions are being busted. Right. And this is what Barbara, not to bring them up constantly, Barbara and John Ehrenreich, they really, what they identified with this rising kind of PMC was this, um, this kind of uh, contempt for the masses and for the working mm-hmm. class um, and this sort of moral superiority that they felt like through, um, through education, we can kind of like understand the real, the real battles. And, and that, that again, one thing I try to repeat over and over again is that there's really nothing wrong with professional intellectual people being part of left movements or socialist movements. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously you look at when, when socialist politics was most powerful, you had a whole cadre of of highly educated people. Not I mean, notwithstanding Mark Marx himself, Lenin. These people were highly <laughs> PMCified, right? So, um, but they they were able to use um, you know their backgrounds to kind of try to build a broader um, working class politics that that helped helped build it and helped build through the working class. So, the problem is when, uh, as Barbara and John Ehrenreich point out, when you sort of are setting out a politics that's actively antagonistic to the working class and kind of um, again showing contempt toward them, that's where you can run into problems and um and that's what I see in a lot of climate politics it's It's very much um this kind of moral superiority over this you know these masses who eat their cheeseburgers <laughs> drive their yeah. cars and go to Texas roadhouse or whatever it is. Yeah. Like, there's just this, this, this sort of moral superiority that's not going to help you build a mass working class movement at all. Right.
1: And well, before we get to like, um, just so people know, we're going to get to some of the things that that we can do. And like, this isn't just one big criticism of, you know, environmentalism at large, like this is important. We want, we want to reduce emissions and, and, and come up with a solution to this. But before we get there, um, you know, apart from just like the kind of PMC left, I think it's worthwhile to also talk about the kind of neoliberal, neoliberal or like liberal, um, climate movements, which, um, you know, basically sort of treat climate change. Like, um, the, the problem as it's a problem of market forces not yeah. being, uh, correct. And that if we could just correct the market forces, that would be a, a, a solution to climate change. Mm-hmm. Could you give us a bit of the socialist critique to that kind of, uh, logic?
2: Well, um, I have to thank old Karl Marx again for this one because you know if you read Capital, like his whole point is like classical political economists are obsessed with exchange and the prices in the market at the surface, and that to understand capitalism you really go need to go deeper into the hidden abode of production to see where class struggle. And I was seeing the same thing, like in the climate, I call them policy technocrats. These kind of policy wonky people who think we can kind of use market forces to solve the problem they are totally only looking at exchange and the market system and the price system as something that can just be corrected through a carbon tax or through carbon pricing you can the the economists say it's like um even Milton Friedman would agree that this is like a market failure that um emissions are Not taking like the cost of emissions aren't taken into account in the prices of commodities. So you just have to correct for that and internalize the cost into the prices by a carbon tax or there's these other complicated things called cap and trade that are just a nightmare. Um, But these kinds of market based policies will basically create through the price system incentives that will seamlessly guide uh, entrepreneurs (laughs) to investing clean energy away from fossil fuel energy. And this has been the theory that like, we really don't need to confront the power of the fossil mm. fuel industry. We just need to get the prices right and allow the market to sort of, again, seamlessly transition to the promised land. Um, but the problem is that um, there's a lot of problems, but for one, like um, these, as you probably got from what I was just explaining, essentially what these policies mean is we want to internalize the cost, which means to raise the price of energy uh, ultimately. And people don't like that. (laughs) As we're seeing right now, (laughs) the the masses of people don't respond well to huge spikes in energy Mm costs, but also the right, the anti-climate, right wing is very easily able to take these policies and say, look, these liberals are trying to scheme to make the price of energy more and make your life worse and make your life cost more. Um, I quote, I quote Charles Koch, basically making this argument, mm-hmm. like he's concerned about the poor pay a third of their income to energy. And this is going to hurt the poor. He's, you know, really looking out for the poor.
1: <laughs> yeah. <it's> Coke.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Good friend of the poor's. Um, and so these, um, policies fall right into the right's lap as an easy way to kind of build a kind of populist backlash to climate policy. And the, um, the other thing is they're just, even without the right villainizing these types of policies, they're just not popular on their own merits. You know, the state of Washington, which is a pretty liberal democratic leaning state. They tried to pass a carbon tax in 2016 and 2018, Failed size by sizable margins both times. Um, and what's really funny is that these policy technocrats, they actually think that by making these free market policies, they can actually win over the Republicans, win over the right to like good climate policy. And um, this organization, I, I, I hate to mention them, um, but I bring them up in the book called The Citizens Climate Lobby they set up this little wonky policy called the carbon fee and dividend that would redistribute the fee to households through a dividend, Mm -hmm. but they are very insistent to call it a revenue neutral policy, which means the fee will not grow government is how they frame it. And they think that that will help them get Republican support because we all know Republicans don't want to grow government, but anyone that's looking at the climate crisis knows we actually, it's going to take a whole shit ton of public investment and a whole lot of growing government essentially and so they just like they're trying to win over this mythical climate supporting republican <laughs> and and it's obviously not working and 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 so these yeah it's it's just it's just very hopeless and um the citizens climate lobby has a slogan called we're going to outsmart climate change that's and this is <laughs> this is where the professional class thing comes in it's like it's like we're so smart we can design these really logical rational policy that will just like fix the market and, and it's going to work and it, it, it still has not worked. And then whenever people have been able to pass something like a carbon tax, um, you see what happens uh, like in France where the yellow vest movement, you get a mass working class revolt because people, again, people don't want to see their energy costs rise. Even if they're seeing some sort of weird dividend that comes later, they don't like... Raising the price of energy because climate change is not going to win people over. It's not a great strategy at all.
1: Well, it's certainly not a majoritarian strategy. And like you know, I, 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 I you know I grew up poor in the South. I live in a working class neighborhood in my hometown now. And I talk to my neighbors all the time about this stuff. And, uh, you know, I will always remind folks that, you know, first of all, most of the people I know just don't vote. Um, but they're also very worried of things because they've noted in their life that when politics comes into their life, usually things are about to get worse, not better. Um, and, and we'll break down some of the ways that we can, can uh, flip that in a second. But one of the things that, that you noted in a, a piece you wrote a little while ago uh, called climate doom won't save the planet mm-hmm. Two is that um banks have poured what 3.8 trillion dollars into fossil fuels in recent memory and those banks expect a return on mm-hmm. that investment right so thinking that like even if like even in this best case scenario right where you're able to get the the tax increase, right. carbon taxing right um there is not the incentive even within the market uh, for there to be less fossil fuel production from all the people and all the organizations that are invested in this process. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I mean, I I critique him somewhat in the book, but Bill McKibben has um, done some good work in just showing how many gigatons of fossil fuel still remain in the earth and how much the fossil fuel industry is counting on, Uh, banking in on that and and that investment and and we're seeing now like again um, just with Ukraine and with inflation it's just like climate change is just off the table and it's back to kind of fossil fuel production gone wild and and oil gas and coal firms are seeing Mm -hmm. just windfall profits right now and one of the, the real issues that we're facing is that we keep we keep just thinking like the market will solve this but like if we keep leaving it to the market this is what happens you get windfall profits for the very industries that we need to transition away from and it's 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 so clear it should be so clear that we need to like take some sort of social control over this energy system to guide it towards where we need but um no one's willing to it's just ideologically impossible to even like contemplate that just Mm -hmm. like Pete Buttigieg said like there's no way we can government can produce this baby formula like that's not allowed right it's 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 the similar thing it's just like we're just going to let the world burn because we can't violate the property rights of private capital who control the energy system and they're going to keep controlling it and profiting from the very energy that's burning the planet up and going to make could make life uninhabitable for many humans in, in this century. So it's just, it's the way we just seed uh, everything to capital in the market and act like we can't control it. It's just, it's depressing to me as someone who what, has a six year old girl. Oh, <laughs> yeah, no.
1: I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting though. Like um, just like talking about the, you know, what, what, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has meant for oil and gas. Like here in Texas, like, I don't people don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that there's any inclination in the oil and gas industry to slow down production, um, but to, you know, at least in the short term, sort of lessen the, the price of gas. You actually haven't seen as much ramping up as you would expect. Now, there have been a lot of new permits that have been distributed, and those will certainly be um, used. Um, but th- the point is, is that while all of these uh, fossil fuel corporations are raking in profits right now, what are they doing with it? they're actually distributing it to their shareholders and their investors in in the form of dividends. And the point here is not that, oh, the fossil fuel corporations have gone woke and they're trying to keep the oil on the ground. Um, It's that finance is the master (laughs) of the beast. And until you start to deal with that master, you're not going to get close uh, to dealing with this problem.
2: Right. There's, you know, you've probably heard of BlackRock and Mm -hmm. They've been trying to set up what's called ESG investing environment, social governance, investing where it's going to like the world of finance is going to try to make sure that all these firms are taking the risk of climate change into account. And, and we're going to not invest in, in fossil fuel projects and all this kind of stuff. A few months ago, a bunch of um, Texas uh, energy firms, and I think even elected representatives basically started a petition that that basically accused Larry Fink of BlackRock of of boycotting illegally the fossil fuel industry and they were going to take action and just basically try to get all of these Texas entities out of BlackRock and and he freaked out and was just like I just want to be clear we like fossil fuels everything's fine <laughs> <laughs> and it just shows like the like this is not the answer Larry Fink and BlackRock are not going to save us um, no. so, um
1: um, well, unless you had something, Matt. Um, I was hoping to get to to degrowth a little bit before we get to the the more hopeful bit of, of the book, um, because I think yeah, that, yeah,
0: I think just maybe a little bit before degrowth kind of to set the table for that. Can you just go through e- the concept of ecology and how to sort of combine that with a, a Marxian class analysis? Hmm.
2: Very nice. Um, so e- ecology is essentially like the study of life and it's webs of relations that make life possible. Um, And, and obviously typically it's been, it's been used to study um, non-human ecosystems, like, you know, like um, wolves and the, the, what the wolves eat and the the plants that they rely on, like the web of life. And, um, but uh, you know, like we are, we are animals. We're living beings within ecosystems. And, um, and so I think from a, a Marxist perspective, again, Marx is very clear that like humans have to produce and reproduce their material existence in a very kind of ecological way. Um but you know, unlike animals that really produce their subsistence directly through nature, like what humans do, that's really weird, is we um basically uh, force all the humans off any guaranteed way to make a living off of nature, uh, in other words, we dispossess the bulk of humans from the land and uh, and and through a process of enclosure, sort of privatizing the land, pushing all these people off of it and this is a process Marx called proletarianization of kind of turning uh, peasants and other indigenous peoples and people that are rooted in the land, basically violently tearing them from the land to turn them into uh, basically people that have nothing to sell, but their labor power to survive on a market. And, you know, again, you don't see that nature. You don't see bears uh, privatizing the means of fish production and forcing the other bears to work for wages to access the fish. And so the fact that we do this to humans um, creates this very weird ecological system where working class people have to, Sell their labor, work for money to access food commodities and other shelter commodities that they need to survive. So I call this a proletarian ecology where it's really this fundamental insecurity of meeting your basic life needs, your basic ecological needs as a human, include healthcare in there, um, energy being a big one. Um, and so that uh and then the other side of that class analysis is there's a class of people that control the production of those core life needs like energy and food and, um, and housing. And those people are profiting off, off those sectors while we have to work, um, to, to get this just bare access to our, our lived needs. Um, so anyway, that, that, uh, I'll try not to go on too long, but, uh, Um, like a lot of like people in the environmental NGO and academic community really talk about like environmental politics is really, it's like something that is going to be something environmental that's like affecting someone's life, like toxic pollution or, or land dispossession or um, some sort of uh, again, like um, environmental threat to a community. Um, And so there's a whole sort of, focus on like environmental justice and these frontline communities that are like bearing the brunt of climate change and climate disasters. But um, that kind of focus on just like these material environmental threats doesn't really look at that broader proletarian ecology where most people's threat to their lives is just the market itself. It's the fact they don't have enough money to get the things they need and that they really are struggling to get by um, paycheck to paycheck. And that, that, no one ever frames that life struggle as an environmental struggle, but it is right. And and if we actually start framing our climate or environmental politics that tries to appeal to that, those life struggles, the struggle to get by in the, in the capitalist market, we actually might reach a much broader base of people that are, that are struggling because the environmental justice focus almost like by definition talks about how these, uh, poisoned communities are are these marginalized communities, right? They're they're sort of like peripheral to the system and they're they're the most oppressed, the most marginalized, the most frontline. Um, but it's 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 a lot to expect these extremely oppressed and marginalized communities to be the ones that are going to build the power and build the movement, to, to win, uh again, to beat these capitalists who control the energy system. So it'd make much more sense to try to frame our environmental politics toward that proletarian insecurity where um, you can reach people just, again, who are just struggling to get by. And um, and it, it's, it's very lucky that you know the very sectors that people depend on in their lives, like food and energy and housing, are the things we need to decarbonize, are the things we need to transform. And instead of being those climate wonky people and saying we're going to internalize the prices and make stuff cost more, we'd say like we, we give you better access or even decommodified access to these these basic necessities of your life, um, which uh, I think the Green New Deal was like a first cut at trying to sort of think mm-hmm. about. It. I mean, Medicare for all is decommodified access to healthcare, but we could think about doing that for things like energy and how public housing and um and um maybe even food (laughs) but these are the sectors like that are at the core of the climate crisis and if we tried to talk about material gains for the working class through those sectors it would i think have more potential to build a broader base
1: yeah and also yeah i mean and also like you know the the marxist like theory of change is not that like the proletariat is necessarily the most exploited or the most oppressed um that's ever existed in history is that they they have a very specific role in production that is crucial to it. And that's why if you can organize them, we can get pretty radical uh, changes. In and then we'll get to a, a little bit of that in a second, but, I did want to, you know, touch on degrowth because look, degrowth is something that it's very buzzy right now. You can write books that fly off the shelves if, <laughs> if you're writing about degrowth. Um, and I think a lot of people, at least people who are listening to this interview, like they consider themselves anti-capitalist mm-hmm. um, or socialist. And they're attracted to degrowth because it seems like it takes aim at the system as a whole. Yeah. Um, The growth of the capitalist economy. Um, But I think you make a pretty strong counter argument to this perspective, um, specifically um, by asking the question, who benefits from growth in the capitalist system?
2: Right. Right. So the kind of degrowth movement kind of frames itself against um, our societal obsession with growth. But what that means is GDP growth, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like you open the paper if GDP growth growth is up, it means the economy is healthy and um, the economy is creating jobs and everyone should feel okay about things. Um, but that is an aggregate measure of all the goods and services turning through an economy. And it it, 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 it measures if that activity is going up, it, it's growth and it's good. Mm-hmm. But obviously, we know that we live in a capitalist economy that's based on classes that have fundamentally antagonistic interest and saying gdp growth went up 3.5% at the aggregate doesn't tell us a lot about what's happening it for the working class or for poor parts of the economy you know it 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 probably tells us that investors and owners are doing well and and maybe they're investing in ways that are creating jobs but maybe they're doing what you were saying before like doing stock buybacks <laughs> and and mm-hmm. and and just giving dividends to shareholders and and things like this. So um, there's this kind of the way in which GDP growth kind of focuses on the aggregate really confuses and obscures that we live in a class society. And it kind of doesn't allow us to see that actually when certain people are growing, it's at the expense of others that are being exploited and that matters. And you need this sort of conflictual analysis of classes So the degrowth movement kind of takes that aggregate focus on growth and says, we're going to, we don't like that. We're going to flip it, right? We're going to negate that through (laughs) degrowth. But they also are fixated on the aggregate that, you know, Mm -hmm. any definition you're going to see, it's going to say there has to be um, reductions in material throughput at the aggregate level. And particularly, they're really focused on what they call rich countries and the global north countries, Mm -hmm. right? and they are the ones that really need to degrow de- not ever mentioning the fact that there's you know a third of americans can't even afford their utility bills <laughs> like like uh, you know people are struggling uh, about a fifth of americans really can struggle to get food on the table and so by saying that rich countries need to degrow rich um uh the rich part of the world is the problem again um and and only looking at this aggregate level, you aren't doing that class analysis. You aren't saying. I mean, I'd be. I've actually one of the most prominent um, degrowth advocates. Some guy named Jason Hickel. Recently, he was on a podcast where the title was the, "We Need to degrow the Rich," and um, I was like, that sounded better to me like yeah. finally like he wasn't saying we need to degrow rich countries he's saying we need to degrow the rich which is what i've said yeah sure let's degrow we'll degrow the capitalist class yeah. so that we can grow the the working class and grow but and not just grow the working class security and, and access to um uh, fundamental human needs like healthcare, but also um you know it's we got to grow a whole again, started using this word shit ton of, of, of infrastructure, uh, like, like public transit, like new, new, um, totally new energy, uh, grid, uh, and infrastructure, uh, to solve climate change. And it's going to mean a lot of industrial growth, the things environmentalists seem to hate the most, right. It's going to be building a whole lot of stuff, building a whole lot of new stuff. And, um, and, uh, that's growth, right? And and then so if you bring this up, they'll say, Well, of course we want to grow some things, but um then you ask why is the whole messaging on D, which means less, and why is there just this fixation on the politics of less? Why is there's this slogan? Um CNBC did a whole profile degrowth and said the slogan is how to live better with less, right? and it's it, it, it it's hard not to see it as just another example of this neoliberal austerity world we live in where it's do do better with less <laughs> that's that's the slogan of neoliberal austerity and um and so it's um and again it appeals to mm-hmm. the professional class who who are comfortable and feel guilty about their I mean, Comfort, and so, like the idea of less right i 'm telling you i'm surrounded by these people they they 're trying so hard to live a, live better with less and but most people the the, the vast majority the the two thirds of Americans that don 't have college degrees like they don 't they, they want more they deserve more they 're struggling just to meet basic needs and and, and a politics of less is not going to appeal to those those masses of people.
1: No, no, I mean, I I just wanted to to add here that like, one thing that's been giving me a lot of anxiety lately has been, you know, there's the left slogan that's like, there is no solution to climate change under capitalism. And I certainly agree with that in the sense of like, we're not going to do the things that we need to, um, particularly, you know, in like lessening our reliance on fossil fuels, um, or achieving the kind of just future that we want. Um, but y'all people are foolish if they don't if you don't think that they're going to try and something that is sort of prepping um the population for mass austerity coming um is a very very worrying politics um and and in the absence of like a you know a a real commitment to a kind of green new deal or politics of plenty um it's 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 a very very frightening um political uh political movement and like yeah as you say like (laughs) <laughs> there's a lot of hungry people in this country. I mean, I, I, I've always preferred the Michael Parenti line. There aren't rich countries and poor countries. There are rich people and poor people. Mm, um, yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's, it's just worrying. Cause yeah, I mean one, because uh, I can just see where that's going to go uh, especially in places like Texas. Um, and, and two, it's just, it's just not a winning strategy to say, Hey, you know, rally behind us as we try to radically reshape the economy so that you can have less (laughs) food, less comfort, less, less security.
2: I just, um, I was on twitter.com and someone posted a poster of a communist, uh, political party poster from New Zealand in 1943. Mm -hmm. And it just says more community centers, more gas. We can change that for climate change. Maybe more yeah. uh, clean energy, more transit housing, improved parking, more playing fields. So it's all more, right? And that's mm-hmm. just like socialism. We want to bring more to the working class. And you bring this up with degrowthers and they say, no, we can't have more. No, not more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Never more. Um, so. Yeah. And, and again,
1: like, you know, the degrowthers who are more in the liberal, neoliberal side, that's one thing. But I, I, I just for me like socialism is a philosophy of abundance for the many and i just find these to be just completely incompatible
2: um yep and that wouldn't have been been controversial and you know the early mid 20th century socialism that was just the basis but now you get a lot of people that call themselves eco-socialists and it's and that vision of abundance and free time and and leisure and like that's just gone like um we're all going to be farmers <laughs> and we're going to, you know, like localize our ecologies and and re-relocalize productions. It's just, yeah, it's a nightmare. Um, well,
1: before we move on from, from degrowth, um, I don't know if you have this handy, Matt, but we have this photograph, and Matt, I, I love this image because uh, in, in your book about the man and his donkey, um, <laughs> because it really does highlight not just degrowth, but I do think like a very Prevalent like PMC uh, yeah. mindset, um, not only in like what it's doing internally, but too like just how unattractive this <laughs> shit is to normal people. Um, the <laughs> picture is blurry. Sorry, y'all. But uh, if I have if, a better um, one, I wish I should have shared it with you. Oh, no, if you, I mean, uh, if you send it to us, we, we'll, we'll put it up later.
2: Um, <laughs> Put it in the show notes. or Yeah. Something.
1: <laughs> um, but could you tell us about this this exercise? Because I really do find this to just be a hysterical story.
2: So I, um, to be fair, I read it from just a, one of these very prominent, um, very smart guy, Georgios Callas, a uh, degrowth advocate. And he just described this. One of the founders of the research and degrowth group in Europe um, is this guy. I think his name is Francois Schneider. And classic professional classes. Dude has a PhD in industrial ecology and he decided um, he lives in what's called a tiny home. I don't know if you're Mm -hmm. familiar with the tiny home movement. I live in Austin, (laughs) man. They love that shit here. Dumpster diving, tiny homes, you know. (laughs) So he lives in a tiny home and he decided to spread the gospel of degrowth. He was just going to hike around uh, France in rural villages with a donkey um, to just sort of show the benefits of a slow, I guess, slow lifestyle and, and sort of slowing down and relying on animal based transport again, I guess. Um, and <laughs> and even Callas in the description says that, you know, he's he's marching around uh, to bewildered villagers. And it's like, obviously, these people are bewildered, because <laughs> if you look at the picture I have, the guy is like he looks straight out of my graduate program that I'm <laughs> he's got like the scruffy beard he's got like yeah. a North Face jacket you know like a really nice Gore-Tex like rain jacket and like really sturdy boots and he just looks like a grad student and but he's with a donkey right and um so a hyper highly educated knowledge worker marching around with a donkey and trying to tell people like this is the way the future is, is just <laughs> it's it's hard to like of course this is not the way to, to win masses of people to a movement, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: I, I zoomed in really close and it's not Sasha Baron Cohen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: that's a good theory
1: actually. I didn't <laughs> Um, okay, well, we've we, we've sort of you know broken down some of our critiques, and I, I'm just going to put another plug in. People like buy this book, read it. Climate Change is Class War. It it, it really, um, it's 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 a it's a great read. I always say when people say it's a quick read, but it's a very exciting uh, read, and you can you don't have to spend too too much time going through all of it. And also another quick plug, very good. I think introduction to a lot of just basic Marxist concepts as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but. So we've we've criticized degrowth and the kind of neoliberal model and some of the PMC stuff. What would a working class climate politics start to look like?
2: So I th- I think I already kind of spoiled it by talking about that that proletarian ecology, but the fact yeah. that um the Green New Deal, like I, I did feel like the Green New Deal was kind of a breakthrough because it was finally the climate politics that was finally talking about, like this is a a program that's going to improve your life. It's going to make your life better. It's going to have things like a job guarantee, have things like more paid vacation time and, you know, like, like imagining a shorter work week. Um, uh, The thing uh, that I like, you know, like, I think it's really important that it's called the Green New Deal because it, it harkens back to the New Deal itself, which was probably the height of working class and left power in this country. And in the ways in which that program was fundamentally about mobilizing public investment to improve uh, masses of people's lives directly, Um Uh, obviously through like the National Labor Relations Act and union rights and things like that, but all social security and all the rest. But what's really inspiring about the new deal was fundamentally an energy program. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) They set up the Tennessee Valley Authority and uh, built out massive hydroelectric dams and and basically electrified the whole countryside in the United States, which didn't have electricity. And you want to talk about Austerity. I mean, like these farms without electricity, the, the the manual labor that it took to just do basic tasks and just horrific. And bringing electricity was truly li- like like uh, liberating um, to the toil of, of rural people. And in 1934, 10 percent of farms had electricity. By 1950, it was 90 percent. So they just fundamentally electrified the countryside. I, I know you'll like this, David, because uh, your country music, but um, Woody Guthrie, they hired Woody Guthrie <laughs> to sing folk songs yeah. about the Columbia River doing work for the people. And um, they, you know, like this very, po- like sort of populist and positive uh, vision of, of improving people's lives through electricity. Ten- Tennessee Valley Authority's slogan was electricity for all, which is what... We talk a lot about Medicare for all, whatever for all. Um, And so that was really exciting to me um, uh, to try to sort of take inspiration from the New Deal to kind of do this Green New Deal. Um, Of course, the the problem is that for the kind of Green New Deal theory of change, the whole theory of change is like you're going to start to deliver these material benefits to people's lives under the name of climate action. And then you're going to start to build, uh, support for those types of programs. And you start to stitch together kind of popular majorities. And, and, and I think they were hoping that they could sort of start, start to build a kind of left realignment of politics, like we saw in the 1930s, or we saw a rightward realignment in the 1970s. And, but, if, but if you don't win power and you aren't able to deliver those material gains, um, no one 's going to believe in the green new deal no one 's <laughs> going to think it's uh, it 's realizable and uh, and people are just going to be um cynical and resign that this is not really going to happen um, so um you know there was this like big high level gambit on power you know I think it's pretty clear Bernie Sanders was like the Green New Deal candidate, and he lost right and um, and we got stuck with with biden and you look at what Biden's doing and it has in it, and, and even what he tried to do for climate most of it got killed right it's not mm-hmm. going to even happen but if even if they got the build back better act almost all of that was not big public projects and public job guarantees it was private sector uh, tax credits mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. basically tax credits for private renewable energy capitalists to uh, to save us right and still today John Kerry and Janet Yellen are constantly saying government can't solve this problem. It's the private sector that has to do the investing. They have to solve it. And it's just like we're in this doom loop <laughs> of the Democratic Party that uh, people get hopeful when we're going to get a new Democrat in there. And then they get in there and it's just complete disappointment because they're not yeah. rising to the to the challenge, really.
0: Imagine Pelosi in like 1930 <laughs> being like the green, the, the, dream. The, the new dream or whatever it's called. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Not going to happen, Franklin. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, but the, I mean, this is one of the the big challenges I think that that we find ourselves in as the left, sort of, you know, post-Bernie, at least for now. Um, you know, trying to rebuild these movements because you know I, I talk to a lot of my union friends here who, um, you know, are, are people who believe in uh, you know the ideas of, of the Green New Deal, but they they say when they talk to their other friends, like. You know, they like the idea of a just transition, but they're like, it's all bullshit. Like mm-hmm. no one's ever shown up for us. And like, I've been working on a piece. We'll see if it ends up happening on, on Texas over the past couple of years, um, making the argument that like Texas is a preview of our climate future and particularly focusing on what oil and gas workers experience. Because, mm. um, you know, in the pandemic, when you started to see these shutdowns in production, they saw exactly what will happen. Right, yeah. yeah exactly. The CEOs are taken care of. The people who work in the offices are of Houston are taken care of. And fuck y'all, you know, figure out something on your own. And we have to be there, um, you know, finding a way to actually show up materially in their fights right now. I mean, you know, in Beaumont, Texas, there was a, a, a company lockout of U.S. Uh, w workers that was like nine months long, um, and a very significant attempt that almost won uh, to decertify the union. Like that's the state of organized labor right now. Um, In that industry in in Texas and like, you know, for people who are listening to this, wherever you're at, but particularly in Texas, like you got to show up for these people. Now, if you want them to believe that we can that we want to build this and then also that we might have the power to deliver that in the future, because I do agree that that's the model. And like some of the big questions of social politics right now are also getting people to believe that we can do it. Right.
2: Yeah. um, I mean, when Bernie lost, it kind of felt like, well, We have to. It it felt, unfortunately, I think Bernie felt sort of like a shortcut. Like, we're going to.
1: Yeah. Here's a Hail Mary. (laughs) Yeah. We're going (laughs) to
2: win power at the the presidential level of the core of empire. And then Bernie's going to kind of awaken a kind of working class movement from the decades of slumber. But that's not typically how it works. It's usually working class organization, unions, and other institutions embedded in communities that build themselves up first and then you might be able to win sort of electoral power um so yeah to uh the just transitions just become unfortunately kind of like an ngo slogan that Mm -hmm. you know like well what are you going to do about the fossil fuel workers just transition you just sort of shout it and, and but there's not a lot of details and as you said there's no existing just transition for coal workers or oil and gas workers when they do get laid off, which they have been and especially coal workers. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the unions that represent them are like, don't tell us about any just transition. All we see is unemployment and devastation. Right. So um, I, I that you have to go back to the the founder of the concept of just transition, which is a guy named Tony Mizaki, an incredible union leader, and also environmentalist who helped organize unions uh, to fight for their health and safety. And in in, in, he's the vice president of the oil and chemical and atomic workers union. And he um, basically built a mass movement on uh, basically toxic exposure in chemical factories in the workplace and helped pass basically single-handedly with his union helped pass the um, occupational health and safety administration. Mm-hmm. And, um, he came up with a just transition in the early 90s. Uh, he had this hilarious way of putting it that he said, um, we should treat workers as well as we treat dirt. <laughs> because the EPA set up super fun things where they clean up, they put all this money into cleaning up the dirt and they invest in, in cleaning up the land. But what about the workers who are left behind from these toxic uh, industries? We should take care of them as well as we take care of dirt. But he had a model for his idea of a just transition that he lived and he experienced. And it was the GI Bill. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, he was a World War II veteran and he and 13 million other veterans took advantage of this extremely expansive welfare state program (laughs) that gave people income supports and free education to transition out of the war economy into the civilian economy. And that he said, if we can do that for veterans, we can do that for people in these dirty industries and, and actually give them real material uh, support to transition them. And so he envisioned like a, a real serious expansion of the welfare state to transition workers. And I, I do think if, if we were to set up something like that, workers would mm-hmm believe in a just transition but that as you all know that takes power to to win that kind of just transition where you would vastly expand the welfare state but if we could do that 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 would be the type of thing that could actually convince these workers that there is something called a just transition
1: well um you, you make this argument in, in the book and, you know, in, in a lot of ways, it's obvious because when we're talking about climate change, um, you know, what's creating that it's the way that we are producing energy mm-hmm. and doing that kind of socially necessary work, getting people to work, keeping the lights on, keeping your house warm, cooking your food. Yeah. Um, and, and you make the argument that, you know, we really need to be talking about, uh, public power. Um, mm-hmm. you know, could, could you sort of break down one, why it's so important, um, you know, as a transition model and also like what that really means in, in, in practice uh, too. Cause when people hear public power, they just think of utilities. Right. And and mm-hmm. you're talking about something very different here.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, to take a step back, like mm-hmm. essentially like climate and analysts know, like to decarbonize our economy, it sounds like we have to change everything. It's going to be so complex and crazy, but it actually is really simple. We have to, basically decarbonize the electricity sector. That's Mm. the core. And then you so-called, you electrify everything else, like the things, like the cooking of the food, the the driving, if we can get electric cars, um, public transit, uh, you know, you can actually move towards electric sources of heat. You can move towards electric uh, industrial applications. Um, And so this electrify everything strategy Basically means that electricity is at the core of mm-hmm. um the whole the whole struggle right um and and when you start to look at that uh yes, we need basically like we have all these really horrible um the good old John Oliver just did a segment on electric utilities and how you know they're these profiteering investor owned mm-hmm. Uh, corrupt, horrible capitalist things. And so we public ownership of, of these utilities would um, be one way to kind of start to make these electric utilities where their primary goal is not profit and shareholder wealth, but like decarbonization. And also I would add like trying to deliver cheaper energy mm-hmm. to, cause that's, I didn't mention that. That was the big thing about the new deal. They weren't just about delivering energy to the farms. They were about delivering cheaper energy um and that's super important uh so public power cheap energy plus decarbonized power like it could be a you know it could be a real uh uh i think catalyst to the decarbonization challenge but to win that i think you need to think about who has the power in this electricity system and again um no surprise to socialists but the workers in this electric uh utility system are um some of the most unionized in our entire economy, the electric utility sector is, is got about 25% union density. And um, these are skilled, highly knowledgeable workers mm-hmm. who work in very dangerous occupation. And um, these uh, unions are, um, you know, basically I think if you look at public power campaigns and, in the socialist space today, and you look at, environmental climate politics that focus on this electrifying everything there's not a lot of engagement with these unions right with these Mm -hmm. workers because there's these these unions let's be serious like they can be conservative uh some of them might be trump supporters uh that they they have very kind of top down um you know trade union bureaucracies and all that stuff but I think a, I think a lot of the, again, quite PMC climate movement just sort of sees these unions as problematic and bad mm-hmm. and can't deal with them. But you're not going to win a transformation of this sector unless you get these unions on board. And so um, we really need a strategy to, to engage with these unions, win them over, but also um, put them at, the, at the, in the driver's seat of kind of the policy directions and the kind of and again, cause these workers know more than any of these <laughs> NGO types about how electricity works. They really know. And they also really care that like they take mm-hmm. pride in like delivering this, um, this vital service to, he- to human beings. Like if the lights go out, as you all learned in Texas yeah. and the lights go out, it's deadly. Like, and they, they want to keep the lights on and they really care about that about things like grid reliability. And, um, and so these workers are the ones we need to win over. And what I, suggest in the book is that if we wanna win them over, we have to make the case that um if they don't start thinking strategically about how to make sure these unions are at this core of this energy transition, then they're gonna their unions are gonna be destroyed by a sort of renewable energy green capitalism powered by Wall Street, because that's like renewable energy is very anti-union right now. Yeah. It's got very low union density. So if we're just gonna let Larry Fink and BlackRock sort of turn us to the, the renewable energy transition, it's going to, it's going to really eviscerate these unions. And so if they, they really need to start thinking about how can we build a a program that will put unions at the center of this. And it's nice that Biden says, you know, these, we're going to create a lot of union uh, green jobs, but you actually need like mandates. You need project Mm -hmm. labor agreements. You need unions right at the seat at the table when you're looking at these new projects. And so, um, I think socialists can actually start to try to start to work with these unions. Even, you know, uh, socialists have been becoming teachers to do, mm-hmm. do a rank and file strategy to kind of like radicalize the unions from the end. Well, these unions I think are ripe for that, for, for like climate concerned socialists who want to kind of organize within these unions to try to push them to, 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 to have a green energy transition strategy that can, forestall this this renewable energy wall street capitalism that's coming
1: and and like when it comes to to public power and like i i, I would like uh, i really appreciate you spending time with us and we don't want to keep it too much longer but i definitely want to hear you sort of juxtapose the kind of small boutique or like small is beautiful kind of power versus industrial scale. Um, but just wanted to note, like here in Texas, it's, it's very frightening because, um, one, you talk about union stuff, um, you you know, some of the worst jobs in electricity right now are doing household solar installation. I mean, those guys, like their, their contracts are horrible. It's basically on how many uh, panels you're installing. You have like one guy, you know, risking life and limb to try to do as many as possible. Um, and, you know so there's that but also you know there's an interesting thing where you get some of this like environmental left or whatever you want to call them sort of agreeing with like a republican right because texas is a a state that has deregulated electricity so it's all about electricity choice right and what that's meant um is that unless you're in a place like austin and like a few cities in austin still have like public power um but other places they have you know public power in the sense it's you know community owned to some extent not necessarily what we really want but anyway um what I can definitely see happening and you're starting to see it happening <laughs> is that like Westlake or like the wealthy neighborhoods, they have their nice grid. And then the rest of us are stuck on, um, you know, this kind of dirty, expensive, um, mm-hmm. production and also production that has no real, um, incentive to actually produce. Cause like, I make this point all the time when people talk about what happened here when the power went out, right? Yes, they didn't weatherize the pipes. Right. Right. But, Why did they not do that? Because it's cheaper for them to lose profit for three days or whatever in a freak storm than it is for them to make sure that the lights don't go off in the energy capital of the world, right? I mean, there's like there's like the the actual like physical question like the logistical question of like how to keep power but there's the democratic question where it's like these people don't actually care about you know making sure that they they produce for you um anyways i know i just gave you gave you a lot but um i i do see this trend and it makes me worried and oh sorry just like one last thing i've been doing a lot of reading on this and like the worst bit is like from these environmental liberals is there is this like retreat from politics on it right mm-hmm. i was I read a piece in the Houston Chronicle a couple of years ago and it was like, you know, Oh, there's been a big boom in household solar and they were interviewing people and the guys were just like, yeah, I don't think the government's going to do anything. So I'm just going to do it for myself. And like, that's doom politics right there. That's end of the world kind of stuff.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you actually find a lot of, um, tea party types who love mm-hmm. solar power. They love this idea of getting off the grid and not relying on anyone, but their own self. So they can get an Elon Musk, uh, power wall, which is a battery that your solar panels will charge during the day. And then you have the battery at night. So like there's this incredibly sort of individualistic libertarian streak that really likes, um, you know, this sort of, uh, property solar paneled, uh, uh petty bourgeois subject. <laughs> um, and uh it's just very old to again a traditional left um vision of big public mm-hmm. goods that that benefit everyone um universally right and um and it's it's quite an interesting story when you look at um w- basically in the nineteen seventies as capitalism started to really shift toward this neoliberal model, it started to villainize everything that was sort of, um, big and centralized. So unions, <laughs> uh, governments, uh, government spending, welfare programs, all this kind of big forces needed to be destroyed and cut down and, 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 um, utilities were one of them. And, and so these big sort of vertically integrated investor owned utilities were seen as like too inflexible and they needed to be broken up. And so that's where you got deregulation. Um, and as you, as you said, it happened in Texas. It's, it happened in New York State, actually. And mm-hmm. what they did is they said, the production of electricity, we're going to throw that to the market. you are going to get all these, um, uh, not just one utility that manages production, you're going to get all these different uh, comp- competition, you know, let's see who can do it cheaper. And um, they're called merchant generators. So you're going to have all these merchant generators kind of competing to sell power on the wholesale market and that was what allowed uh small scale renewables to enter the market was deregulation by um making it viable for these small scale generators to get into this highly competitive market the other thing um I wrote a piece with fred stafford about this called in defense of the tennessee valley authority and um we've learned (laughs) that there's this insane, I mentioned before Biden, all his Mm -hmm. policies, tax credits, but there's this long history of the only way we incentivize renewable energy production in the United States was through very lucrative tax credits. Um, uh, So essentially like um, wherever you have renewables development, um, it doesn't make sense for public power or public, like the TVA or any public entity to do these because they can't get the tax credits. Only private capital can Mm. take advantage of those, and so uh, and what they do is they sell the tax credits to what are called tax equity investors, which are the most the richest people on the planet, like Warren Buffett and Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, and the people that can really they're really looking for tax shelters, (laughs) looking to shield their income from tax uh, from taxes. Uh, Warren Buffett famously said, "The only reason to build a wind farm is to get the tax credit. It's the only reason we do it." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, you know, you may have heard like Nebraska is 100% public power, but 100% of the solar and wind production in Nebraska is private, mm. and all uh, it's all done by these merchant generators, what are called independent power producers, um, and they're selling into these public, uh, publicly owned grids, right? Um, but it's crazy. Like, uh, basically, if you want to do renewables development in this country, it's got to be private and it's got to um, be on um, this tax credit model that really benefits the richest people in, in the whole economy.
1: Yeah, I mean, Lord in heaven. <laughs> I uh, I really appreciate you, uh, you coming on here, uh, Matt. Uh, the book is Climate Change is Class War. Um, there's a hell of a lot more we could get to. We always learn so much uh, speaking with you, and I think we just might have to do this again sometimes because, I mean, this stuff touches literally everything from, I mean, the lights to political power and what the left should be doing. I highly suggest people uh, check out the book and give it a real read. Um, thanks so much, man. I really appreciate you spending a portion of evening with us tonight.
2: Yeah, thanks for the kind words.
1: means a lot.